just after 9 o'clock on a Saturday morning, and that must mean it's time again for Money Management with Opus 111 Group's Mike Mail. Here's Mike. Good morning. Welcome to Money Management. This is Mike Mail with the Opus 111 Group. We're here to talk with you about the markets and the economy to give you some insight into what's been going on out there this past week and hopefully give you some good information that you can uh, use to make some informed investment decisions. Now, (laughs) once again, it was a rather interesting week, I think we can say. Uh, There's something for everybody, it seems, in the news, but uh, not really all that ultimate much movement in the marketplace. But uh, right now, let me give you the data from uh, yesterday. The Dow closed at 31,318. That was down 337. However, right in the morning, it had been up 370 points. So that's like about a 700-point swing intraday. And there was no different news uh, from the morning until the afternoon. We'll talk about that in a little while. The uh, S&P closed uh, lower at 39.24. The Nasdaq off at 11,630. Russell 2000 ended the week at 18.09. Gold settled at 17.20 an ounce. Silver at $17.86 an ounce. Crude at 86.87 a barrel. The 10-year Treasury was last bid at 3.19%, and soft white wheat quoted at $9.05 a bushel. Oil prices had their third straight monthly decline, and again, we'll touch on that here in a minute. And gold prices were off for the fifth straight month, and that's due to strong U.S. economic data, hawkish Fed Reserve comments, higher interest rates, those kinds of things. Spot silver also uh, down, uh, it closed down to 1778 after hitting its lowest level in more than two years. and again, rising dollar and uh, higher interest rate anticipated uh, is what's behind those moves. Uh, Jeff Bushbinder, who is chief equity strategist at LPO Financial, says uh, corporate America is still hanging in there. With the second quarter earnings season winding down, uh, the S&P is on track to post a profit uh, growth rate of 8.8%, this according to Refinitiv. And Jeff, uh, I'm quoting him, he says, given the challenges corporate, <clears throat> excuse me, corporate America has faced, we consider the nearly complete second quarter earnings season a resounding success. The numerous challenges last quarter included a slowing economy, intensifying inflation pressures, ongoing global supply chain disruptions, and a surging U.S. dollar. Now, in today's broadcast, I want to talk about uh, the economy. I want to talk about the jobs reports, uh, which came out this past week. We'll talk about investing, where to invest now. And uh, I think primarily uh, uh, I'll also be addressing what about the interest rates? What's all this about interest rates and how do they affect me? And how do I uh, respond to that with my investments? So let's get going so we can get to the good part. As far as the economy is concerned, I don't think this is any new news. Uh, home prices continue to soften due to the rising mortgage rates, and so that effectively makes uh, what is already an expensive housing market even more so. Sales of both new and existing homes have been dropping for several months now. And interestingly, uh, mortgage rates are projected to decline next year, but that doesn't mean that uh, prospective home buyers should uh, delay a purchase for the prospect of lower financing costs. Uh, according to Fannie Mae, which is a federal lender, uh, 
They say that the rate on a 30-year fixed will fall to an average of 4.5% next year. And that's, again, their forecast. Uh, and also, according to Fannie Mae, average rates are expected to be 4.7, 4.4 in the first and fourth quarters of next year, uh, down from uh, 520 uh, in the second quarter of this year. Now, according to Freddie Mac, yet another government entity in the real estate biz, Mortgage rates averaged uh, 5.95% this past week. So you can use that as a reference point. That would be what those numbers that Fannie Mae's talking about would be a significant drop. But on the other hand, where it is right now is up significantly from the 3.2% in the first week of this year uh, to the high of 5.8 in June. Now, even a small, seemingly small jump in mortgage costs can have a big leverage effect on consumers because of the higher monthly payments, well, more interest over the life of the loan, and, of course, getting a smaller overall loan. For example, according to HSH data, at a 3.5% fixed rate, a home buyer with a $300,000 mortgage would pay $1,347 a month uh, PITI and uh, 185000 in total interest over the 30 years. Now, at a 5.5% rate, though, the same homeowner would pay uh, 1703 a month and over 313000 in interest for the same loan amount. So you're talking about $350 more a month for, uh, what, a 2% increase in the, bor- the borrowing cost. You can see how that can depress prices, excuse me, sales. Oil prices have recently fallen because they're concerned, always a good word, fear is another one these people like to use, uh, that inflation-induced weakening of global economies would soften fuel demand. And uh, the economy, I think, uh, this is now according to the Atlanta Fed GDP Now tracker, they say the economy stands at least a decent chance of avoiding a third straight negative GDP reading. Because so far, the GDP growth is showing uh, 2.6% for July to September. Now, obviously, we're not through that yet, but that's a good trend. Now, the manufacturing sector uh, reported this week. They're continuing to expand uh, at a rate of, with their indicator is at 50.4 in August. That signals that factories still have plenty to do, and 10 of 18 industries reported growth. The prices index in that report continued to show that inflation pressures may have peaked, falling for the fifth month in a row, and they're down now to the lowest rate since uh, the summer of 2020. Now, about these jobs reports, we had two of them this past week. We had the big jobs report uh, yesterday, and then on Wednesday we had the uh, private sector jobs report. The, basically, the businesses, generally, all sizes, their need to hire remains quite intense. The jobs market has provided a really a bulwark, a wall for the economy, indicating that hiring demand is strong, consumer spending is held up. There are now, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics number that came out Tuesday, more than one million more job openings than expected in July. So, like I say, the labor market's still very tight and strong. And available positions were 11.2 million for the month. Uh, that's about 200,000 higher than the number in June. So, these July numbers reinforce that there's still a considerable shortage of workers for all available positions. It's almost like a two to one margin. 
So that's considered, however, uh, inflationary since employers are, <clears throat> excuse me, or will be forced to offer a higher comp to lure workers at a time when prices are rising. Now, weekly's jobless claims, they dropped to 232,000 for the week. That was a decline from the previous period. Now, this is from our friends at the Labor Department. Signs that hiring demand remains strong indicate that rate hikes may not be slowing growth quite as much as the Fed had hoped. It also means that, once again, the labor market continues to be relatively strong, despite the fact it's not currently strengthening. As long as the job market remains strong, the economy certainly can continue to increase nominal GDP and corporate profits can increase. With uh, the employers adding 315,000 jobs in August, which is what we learned yesterday, which is a slower but still solid pace in a tight labor market, unemployment rate ticked up to 3.7% from a 50-year low of 3.5 last month. But the main driver of the increase is simply that uh, in in the unemployment rate is the number of folks with a job rose, but the number of people looking for a job rose even faster. Now that's good. And the data show that the broader job market's holding up, the likelihood of being in a recession right now, in spite of two consecutive factors of GDP construction, is pretty skinny. Well, minimal is the technical term, but pretty skinny gets it done. Now, what about investing? You know, yesterday uh, was a combination of people getting a little bit nervous. Like, is it is there still further to go? presumably in the downside. Are we still trying to find a dang bottom? Uh, there's probably support around 3,900 for the S&P. Um, that's their index number. And so, you know, you may not want to follow charts, but just understand that a lot of people do. So that helps uh, motivate them. And uh, the S&P, for your reminder, closed at 3,924 yesterday. Anxiety is still there, but no panic. You know, it's just part of the process. Traders trying to figure out, what, uh, is their Fed really going to pull the trigger on a 75 basis point hike? Uh, I'm going to hit on uh, some comments about interest rates because that's what all this has been about since what uh, when Mr. Powell made his announcement in Jackson Hole about a week and some ago. Uh, that's what kicked the markets lower. And so let's let's look at some of the effect of the higher interest rates. What does it mean to you? How you might want to deal with it, and so on and so on. Now, <laughs> Alan Greenspan, who some of you may recall, was the uh, chair of the Federal Reserve a few years ago. He had an interesting saying when it comes to these uh, kind of Federal Reserve dealings. He said, and I'm quoting, I know you think you understand what you thought I said but I'm not sure you realize what you heard is not what I meant, unquote. Now, see, that's how these guys talk. So trying to decode that requires a special degree of training. I don't have that. I got to rely on other people to tell me what they really mean. So let's see if we can uh, translate some of uh, what the Fed's doing and how it can affect you. Now, higher interest rates generally tend to negatively affect earnings and stock prices, with the exception, perhaps, of the financial sector. And any effect on the market uh, from a change in interest rates is pretty quick because it's not like it's, well, let's think about it. Gee, what does that mean? I mean, there, you know, it's math, so it can be figured out pretty quickly. However, for the rest of the economy, it may take some more time, maybe even as much as a year to see any widespread effect. 
Now, what are some of the effects? Okay, it increases the cost of borrowing. Uh, interest payments on credit cards and loans get more expensive. If you've got a floating rate something, uh, you can count on your payments having gone up already and will likely continue to do so for a while. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. People who already have loans uh, will have less disposable income because they got to spend more on interest payments. So that translates into a drag on other areas of consumption. Now, increase in mortgage interest payments. Uh, and as I just said, if you've got a variable mortgage, you already know that this is the case. If uh, This is because a half percent increase in interest rates can increase even well, a, a $200,000 mortgage by about $120 a month. So, once again, puts another hole in your pocket. Increased incentive to save rather than spend. Higher interest rates can make it more attractive to put money in a deposit account because of the interest gain. Now, no one is exactly bending over backward to raise those rates right now, but, uh, you know, that's the trend. Higher interest rates increase the value of the currency, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, and so you're having that effect here on the dollar for sure. Uh, rising interest rates affect both consumers and firms, so the economy is likely to experience some falls in consumption and or uh, capital investment, and certainly government debt, in, debt interest uh, payments increase. Uh, ours has been pretty low, but um, and it's still going to be actually relatively low, but it's going up. And this is a biggie, perhaps. Uh, it reduces confidence. It affects consumer and business confidence, and it discourages investment. Uh, you know, it's just kind of a, a mental thing as much as a physical thing. So, again, higher, higher interest rates do not affect everybody the same just like uh, inflation rates and so on. It not, you know, it depends on your own situation. Folks with large mortgages and often first-time buyers are certainly being affected by rising rates, uh, rising interest rates uh, that causes hardship to those trying to get larger mortgages. Um, and so those with savings may actually be better off. But time lags, the effect of rising rates can often take up to 18 months to have an effect. For example, if you have an investment project that's half done, you're likely to finish it off. However, the higher rates may discourage somebody starting new projects next year, and you're seeing some of that in the, bu in the building business right now, but uh, they've got a lot of other things they've already started that they're continuing to work on to help mitigate some of the uh, supply issues. Now, it also depends on other variables in the economy, of course. A rise in rates can have less effect on reducing the growth of consumer spending. If house prices continue to rise very quickly, people may feel there's an incentive to keep spending despite the increase in rates. Now, the real interest rate is most important. So what that is, is you take whatever the, what they call the nominal interest rate um, minus inflation. So if interest rates went up from 5 to 6%, but inflation, and this is for example, uh, increased from 2 to 5.5%, what that turns into is a, a cut in real interest rates uh, from 3% to one-half of 1%. So in circumstance, the rise of nominal rates actually represents expansionary monetary policy. And expectations. If people expect low interest rates and they rise unexpectedly, it may cause them to decide they can't afford uh, 
mortgages or loans. And the concern is that after several years of low to no interest rates, basically, people have gotten used to those as normal. Well, they're not normal, folks. This is a long way from normal. So historical outperformers, sectors in this area, communication services, healthcare, utilities tend to see a boost uh, because uh, heightened volatility uh, drives investors toward more stable options. Now, once again, volatility, meaning the movement of stock prices, is not a bad thing. It's not a good thing. It just happens. You just just accept it. It isn't. It. Uh, I'm sorry. I get all aggravated about this because it doesn't really change the value. It's just the prices are moving. So now be aware, though, that communication services have undergone some big changes recently. Amazon, Alphabet, Netflix were added to the sector, so the historical performance may not be quite as relevant. Now, energy stocks have been supported by higher oil prices. Now, that in turn helps to drive up inflation, which is a, a key factor in the Fed's interest rate policy. Now, despite the trends... You know, you got to be the oil prices all over the place and it will change day to day because it does. I mean, realistically, there doesn't really a reason in a lot of cases. Financials definitely benefit from rising rates. Banks and other lenders raise rates on borrowers and the longer term rates rise as the Fed starts hiking rates due to strong growth, hopefully, that will stoke inflation. However, the Fed has to act forcefully to tamp down inflation, i.e. raise rates a lot, which raises concerns about growth, then the financials could take a hit. Info technology, high growth sector with little exposure to interest rates, but it's driven more by business investment. And it typically performs well in the early part of a rate hike cycle before the rates have time to cool things down. Now, consumer discretionary has outperformed the S&P this quarter, even as the Fed continues to raise rates. It's up 16% since the start of the quarter, behind only energy on a year-to-date, for the biggest quarterly gain since the second quarter of 2020. Historical underperformers in these environments, consumer discretionary, industrials, material stocks, they tend to underperform during rate hike cycles because folks anticipate that higher inflation and borrowing costs will undercut their business and consumer spending. Consumer staples, which generally are defensive in nature, can face shrinking profit margins in an inflationary environment without any pricing power to offset the higher prices. And real estate, yep, believe it or not, real estate consists primarily of real estate investment trusts is a mixed bag. Now, we're talking about investing here, not individual properties. REITs, as they're called, tend to benefit from economic growth, which supports rent collections and property prices, but a lot of REITs do some heavy borrowing, so it makes them extremely vulnerable to rising rates. Historically, in the year following an initial rate increase, six of 11 market sectors have outperformed the broader market, and they are, in no particular order, communication services, energy, financials, healthcare, infotech, and utilities. The other five sectors didn't do as well with real estate again performing the worst you know people are getting nervous at least the traders are you know is there further to go are we still trying to figure out where the bottom is and as i said earlier you know i think 3900 on the s&p still looks like there's some support uh the and yesterday the 
the S&P did close higher than that, 39.44, I think it was. Uh, well, anyhow, it was around there somewhere. So the anxiety is still there, but no panic. And, uh, you know, our, but what the traders are trying to figure out is, uh, you know, is all this uh, economic news going to have the Fed really pull the trigger when they meet next month at a 75 basis point move, three quarters of 1%? Or will they, quote unquote, only stick to a 50 basis point, half of a percent increase? You know, it, it sounds silly that uh, something as small as that has such a large effect. But when you add it, when you ha multiply those numbers times other numbers that have lots of zeros to the left of the decimal, all of a sudden it changes the picture quite a bit. You know, short-term movements in the market, always, always unpredictable. I don't care what direction. And regardless of whether they occur in a bull or a bear market, doesn't matter. You know, I think the best thing investors can do right now is to focus on your long-term goals and avoid the temptation to react to day-to-day -day swings. As I always like to say, you know, don't pay any attention to the headlines. They, they aren't going to help you, and they have really little to no effect on your long-term holdings. And, and, and it's always a difficult investment for folks with bonds and stocks sinking in, well, the same time this year. MSCI's increase, excuse me, index of uh, global equities has lost 16% so far this year on a total return basis. And the bond gauge from Bloomberg has lost 19.3% from its record high of January 21. Now, regard, regarding bonds, all things else being equal, the longer the maturity of a bond, the due date of a bond, or the average maturity of a bond fund, the more it's subject to changes in interest rates, up or down. So no one cares about the changes when the rates are going down because that, see, rates, the excuse me, bond prices go the opposite direction of the direction of interest rates. So with interest rates going down, that's good news. But in the current environment, rates are going higher. That's not so good. So that's again because that's bad for bond prices. So the longer the maturity date is in your into the future, the greater the losses when rates rise. For instance, uh, the uh, shares of the one to three year. I'm using these for example, by the way. Um, iShares one to three year treasury bond ETF, the symbol is SHY, has an average yield to maturity of three and a half percent. That's higher than what's on a 30 year treasury, uh, but it's still relatively low compared to historical interest rates of the past 50 or 60 years. But compared to the past 10 years, it's a mega jump. On a tax equivalent basis, uh, tax free muni bonds offer a similar type of return iShares also has a short-term national muni municipal bond ETF. The uh, symbol for that dude is SUB. It has a yield to maturity of 2.4%. So, by example, if you're in a 25% tax bracket, the tax equivalent yield, in other words, what you'd have to earn on a taxable thing after tax to get the same amount of money in your pocket, is 3.2%. So pretty close one to the other. And 
so you know those are uh, reasonable returns for some short-term money um, and again they, these are not uh, investments per se but perhaps more like parking places and you know this rapid uh, in interest rate hikes uh, by policymakers in response to the rising inflation has definitely brought an end to the four-decade bull market in bonds for a decade going back into the early 80s. Now, and that's a difficult environment for investors because, as I just mentioned with the MSCI data, both bonds and stocks are going down at the same time. Now, the Bloomberg Global Aggregate Total Return Index of Government and Investment Grade Corporate Bonds, say that three times fast, that's down more than 20% from 2021 peak. That's the biggest drawdown since they started this dang thing in 1990. So, in some ways, the economic and policy realities now facing folks kind of go back to the mid-60s, uh, to the bear market in bonds at that time. And that began in the second half of the decade when a period of low inflation and unemployment came to a sudden end. Oh, did it ever. As inflation accelerated through the 70s, Treasury yields jumped straight up. They lit, sorry, the 10 year would later hit almost 16% in 1981 after the, uh, Mr. Volcker raised the interest rates to 20% to tame price pressures. So here we are with our Fed talking about raising rates, you know, to 3% or 25 or whatever. Uh, 20 is a lot more and definitely not, uh, how might I say? good for you to uh, enjoy. It's not a, not an environment in which you want to work in. So, uh, you know, short-term movements always uh, re are, are, as I said, uh, unpredictable. And you focus on the long-term goals because that's just what you need to do. Fundamental analysis, I believe, is more meaningful. In other words, looking at the earnings stream, their competition, uh, you know, what, what kind of products do they have, um, how strong of a company is it, how, do they pay dividends, if so, for how long. Uh, so fundamental analysis, more meaningful. And while it won't confirm whether this are up, an upturn is a new bull market, well, it points, in our opinion, to a recovery being close. What's close? I don't know, but close. You know, stocks move on the gap between sentiment and reality. And sentiment hasn't improved much since June. So, so if people perceive that things are getting better, that'll help the stock prices move higher even before the numbers actually change. Uh, you know, people still get focused on the rate hikes. They are... <laughs> putting every Fed person's comments under a microscope and every inflation report, you know, looking for hints for which way are we going to go with this monetary policy. And, of course, we got our buddies over in Europe who, I don't know what those people are doing, but uh, their energy woes uh, continue to fuel recession fears over there, and I think they're painting themselves into a corner right now especially since the Russians have shut off the uh, gas line for at least some period. So U.S. economic sentiment continues to hover around its lows, while good economic news continue 
to attract the yeah, but ex- uh, objections. You know, there's, yeah, but, you know, it's good news, but yeah, but I think that's what we saw in the market today. You know, you saw, or excuse me, yesterday, is that we saw the, here's a good jobs report, not as strong as we thought it was going to be, good economic reports, but we're still not sure. Remember, the certainty of uncertainty, it hovers over the markets 24-7, 365. No one is going to know for sure which way things are going to go. And when, especially when these traders who have got this uncertainty over their head, now they've got a long weekend in front of them. No, they're not going to, I'm not surprised the market sold off, perhaps as much as it did. But uh, these people are not known for uh, high degrees of intestinal fortitude. So what do you need to do to prepare? (laughs) Real simple. Make sure you own a diversified portfolio of high-quality stocks of the best companies of the U.S. and the world. Very, very easy. Now, the ability to pass on rising costs to, to their customers without losing business, that's called pricing power. And that's what companies have to have in order to prosper amid any what's called stagflation. The ability to pass on rising costs without losing business, they call pricing power. And that's important to have when you have a uh, sideways economy. And, uh, you know, because people are willing to pay for whatever it is they're selling, regardless almost of the cost. So, for example, Altria Group, that's, uh, it used to be called Philip Morris, um, had pricing power. Folks who smoke, don't resist paying more overtime for something they're addicted to. Just look at what the cost of cigarettes is, and if you don't believe me. Also, products like tobacco, movies, offer consolation when times are tough. Alcohol and sugar companies have done well, too. Hmm, imagine that. And instead of chasing the latest fad, going back to the idea of a portfolio of high-quality stocks of the best companies in the U.S. and the world, add to that diversification. Probably the best answer right now. Insurance and bank stocks are, again, much cheaper than overall the rest of the market. And, you know, history never repeats itself exactly, but you're definitely more likely to defend against stagflation by buying what's cheap than by buying what's already inflated. That only makes sense. Now, rising interest rates make future profits, like those promised by growth companies, less attractive. So higher rates are meant to fight inflation by decreasing economic activity. That could hurt earnings growth, and that's why the jump in the 10-year yield has hit the market so hard. Now, on the other hand, it's helped the dollar, and it continues to trade very strong in the currency markets. A strong dollar and weak commodity markets are really classic symbols of tight money. Commodities are widely considered to be the effective canaries in the inflationary coal mine, because when the Fed is tight, commodities almost always suffer. A rising dollar coincides with falling commodity prices, as we've seen certainly lately. Commodities in general have already broken to the downside after a strong run-up, and I see that the Fed is already pretty tight, I think probably is broken the back of inflation. We'll see. CPI index doesn't come out till mm, I think, uh, September now. But, uh, well, this is September, but uh, in a couple weeks' time. But with the dollar so strong, it's hard to see how the general price level can continue to rise at an unusually rapid pace 
as inflation, by definition, is a loss of a currency's purchasing power. That's just not happening in the commodity markets. And moreover, as we discussed a few times, real estate activity is softened, 30-year rates back up close to 6%. Now, Fidelity says the late stage of a business cycle, such as the U.S. economy's been in for much of this year, according to them, is marked by market volatility, rising share prices, and slowing growth. Fidelity says stocks, bonds, and cash have delivered similar returns during the late cycle, and they believe that this late stage is the time to invest in, and these are categories, sectors, if you will, consumer staples, commodities, materials, energy, and healthcare, among other options. They say also shares of corporations that sell essential products and services, such as consumer staples, utilities, and healthcare, tend to do well. And finally, make sure you have a long-term asset allocation strategy. Stick to it rather than being whipsawed by market volatility. Don't let the market tell you what to do. <laughs> Punch it in the nose. You know, uh, economically uh, sensitive sectors like Technology, real estate, and consumer discretionary tend to do poorly in this stage. And so that has helped move the U.S. measure of classic investing, the 60-40 portfolio, where investments are split by those proportions between stocks and bonds. That's down 15% this year, and that's on track for its worst performance since 2008. Now, evident to itself, that doesn't mean anything, but it just suggests that everybody is uh, being tarred by the same brush right now. Now, changing gears just a little bit, Jason Zweig, a uh, long-term columnist for the Wall Street Journal, writes a column called The Intelligent Investor. And in the, I think it was this week, he had a uh, column that uh, took out or mentioned the positive qualities that the greatest investors share. Now, I know everybody listening is a great investor. We hold that truth to be self-evident. So here's some of the traits that you have that your buddies wish they had. Curiosity, skepticism, independence, humility, discipline, patience, and courage. Now, unfortunately, cultivating those virtues can't prevent the market from dropping, but it should help you from dropping, so to speak. And as uh, if you ever read a book, books by Adam Smith, the guy was a great writer. Uh, he wrote a book, uh, Adam Smith, he wrote a book, that's his uh, pen name, uh, called The Money Game. And he said, the end, the end object of investment ought to be serenity. Yeah, that's right. He, so he can sleep at night. Now, much of inflation is an expectations game. If folks expect more inflation, they'll get more inflation. If they expect it to drop, then it will drop. The problem is that once expectations become embedded in the public's perception, it's very hard to undo that. So that's part of the reason why Mr. Powell is sounding so tough. And with the media currently thumping folks in the head about recession and inflation, it's kind of hard to maintain a, what do I say, an objective opinion. And, you know, a week ago Friday when Mr. Powell spoke, he said, Quoting, the longer the current bout of high inflation continues, the greater the chance of that expectations of higher inflation will become entrenched, unquote. And he said, the, and I'm quoting, the economy continues to show strong underlying momentum despite mixed signals on growth, unquote. 
the likelihood that things go worse uh, than the awful conditions that people already, for some reason, expect is low. With expectations so dreary, uh, we think mild recessions in some nations and slow growth in others would likely qualify as a positive surprise. Lizanne Saunders at, uh, where is she? Uh, uh, um, I think Schwab. Anyway, she said we may be doing a, what's called a rolling recession, where different parts of the economy go through recession at different times. Well, that could happen too. You know, uh, and with expectations, uh, well, on, the, on a political front, gridlock across the developed world should reduce the risk of sweeping legislation, creating winners and losers. And, of course, our midterms are going to be turbocharging that rather handily. You know, a, a recovery is what we think is likely, really. And we think it will probably arrive sooner than later. But don't put my feet to the fire because it's impossible to pinpoint when any more possibly than that, precisely, excuse me, than that. Stocks are just, you know, they're all over the place in the short term, and sentiment swings are too big a factor, particularly now, given the market's largely sentiment-driven nature and everybody's singing the blues just because somebody told them that things are not doing so good. The impossibility of predicting short-term sentiment swings is why we encourage folks to focus on their long-term goals and strategies and remember how the market works. As Ben Graham, who is uh, Mr. Buffett's mentor, said, while stocks are a voting machine in the near term, over longer stretches they're a weighing machine, sizing up the fundamentals. In time, stocks resume rising on earnings growth expectations further into that 3-30 to 30 month window they t- typically look out to. And as, and as they always have following markets like these. Capturing those returns, regardless of when they begin, is absolutely crucial to getting the growth, the long-term growth that you need to fund your retirement or to maintain your retirement. Even if stocks have further to fall in the very short run, new bull markets typically erase it quickly. You say it a different way, short-term drops hurt you only if you sell. That kind of makes sense. Those are called realized losses. That's what turns temporary declines into actual losses. Take a deep breath. You know, this volatility may feel painful as it happens, but if you endure it, it's part and parcel of getting your long-term returns. Taking the good with the bad doesn't feel good. It's like bad medicine, right? But it's long been the most beneficial approach for stock investors. Well, I thank you very much for listening. I hope you found this helpful. I hope, too, that you have a wonderful Labor Day weekend. We'll be back next Saturday with more stock market news and insights. My name is Mike Mayo. I'm with the Opus 111 Group, and you've been listening to Money Management. Join us again next Saturday morning at the same time for the financial insight, opinion, and perspective of Money Management with Mike Mayo. Have a question or comment? You can reach Mike at our website, opus111group.com.